Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, we are going to be in Exodus, picking up where we left off last week, Exodus chapter 17. Uh, We're going to be continuing in our teaching series that we've been in for the past uh, two or three months. And you know, if you are asking an Orthodox Jew, uh, who are the greatest leaders that have ever, Jewish leaders that have ever existed, there is no doubt in my mind that Moses would be right there at the top of the list. He is by far, with, uh, with no question, one of the greatest Jewish leaders that has ever lived. But the interesting thing about Moses is that he was, uh, he was human just like we are. He had weaknesses, and he had areas that he needed to develop in. He had areas that he needed to grow in. He needed to mature before he could become um, what a lot of people call the great change agent of his day. He, to become a great leader, he was not born a great leader. He matured into one. And as a matter of fact, this morning, as we're going through the passage, we're going to see that there was a time in Moses' life, the great Jewish leader, there was a time in his life where he had, um, he served God in a unhealthy way, and it almost led to him burning out. And that is something that we're going to be talking about this morning as we get into the passage. The, the title of my message this morning is Avoiding Burnout. And with that said, I want to ask you a question. Are you burned out this morning? Where you're sitting this morning, are you burned out or are you heading into burnout? In other words, you're, you're in a place in life where you feel like you just can't keep going forward. You're tired Inside. If you're really truthful, you might be smiling on the outside this morning, but if you're really truthful, inside, you're tired, you're weary, you don't want to keep going forward. Well, you know, two years ago, I gave my testimony to the church, and one of the things I said in it was that when I was younger, in my mid-20s, early to mid-20s, you know, I wanted to serve Jesus, and the way I wanted to serve him was I wanted to be a flaming uh, thro- uh, flamethrower. I just wanted to be on fire for Jesus. And over time, uh, Jesus showed me some things. Uh, because one of the things I wanted to do, I wanted to do big things for Jesus. Sometimes you hear that, I want to do big things for God. But over time, Jesus showed me that he already did the big thing. That it's not about me doing big things. It's me seeing what big thing he's already done by dying for us on the cross, being buried rising from the dead, ascending into heaven, and returning one day. That's the big thing that Jesus has done. And that I don't need to be a flamethrower, but that I just need to be... Oh, I forgot to bring my prop over here. I need to be a candle, a faithful candle. And, you know, we're a lot like candles because candles are finite. They have a a certain amount of wax and a wick that... After it's over, done, it's gone, it's over, and it's no longer uh, useful in this world, right? And, and we're the same way. And there's three types of candles when we're talking spiritually. There are candles that never get ignited. 
with the light of Jesus. And then there are candles. Please start. Then there are candles that do. And they're faithful to do what they were created to do, and that's just to shine the light in the world around them. But then there's a third type of candle, and we all can fall into this stage. It's when the candle gets turned sideways or even upside down. And what I've learned about a candle, uh, I, went, I did a little test for this sermon. I took two candles. I let one sit like this and see how long it would burn. And I took the other one and I turned it upside down. One of the things that happened was it, it, it went out. But if you hold a candle upside down, it can either burn out or it will burn up 10 times faster than the one that's sitting like this. It, it burns brighter at first, and it looks like it's going a lot, but it doesn't last. It doesn't keep going. It, it doesn't bring that natural light that it was created to do. And that can be how us, as we're seeking to follow Jesus, you know, and we want to avoid burning out. But unfortunately, we live in a culture, an upside-down burnout culture, that enables us to be connected and to be on 24-7, right? All day long with media and uh, all the devices that we have, we hardly ever are encouraged to shut down. And, and because of that, we have a lot of zombies walking around in our culture, and, and not just in our culture, but also in our churches. God did not design us uh, to be everlasting gobstoppers. We are not infinite. We are finite creatures, and so what we need to learn is how to live the Christian life without burning out. And so my question again to you is, are you burned out this morning as we're sitting here? There's a book that I want to show you uh, that I've been reading. It's called Reset, Living a Grace-Paced Life in a Burnout Culture. It's by David Murray, and he gives a list of warning signs to help us to diagnose, are you in burnout or are you headed for burnout? And uh, I'm going to read a little bit of that list, about uh, one-fourth of that list. If you get the book, there's a lot more in there to diagnose yourself, but I'm going to give you enough to, that I think it can help you diagnose yourself this morning. Uh, with, the, with that said, though, if you have to choose between reading that book and reading this book right here, I want to encourage you to read this book first. If you don't have time to read both, read this one. Get into the Word of God. Uh, that one is based on the Word of God, but there's nothing like being in the Word of God. That's just kind of like a side, side note there. But I want to read a list that uh, David gives us and see if you can relate to this. You are suffering health issues one after another. You feel exhausted and lethargic all the time, lacking energy or stamina for sports or playing with your kids. You find it difficult to sleep, you, you wake up frequently, or you wake up early and can't get back to sleep. You are putting on weight through lack of exercise or eating too much junk food, or you are drinking too much alcohol or coffee. Concentration is hard. Distraction is easy. And you think obsessively about certain difficulties in your life, and your brain feels fried. Sometimes you feel sad, maybe so sad that you have bouts of weeping or feel you are on the verge of tears. It's been a long time since you've had a really good laugh or even made someone laugh. Instead, there's emotional numbness. 
You feel pessimistic about life and hopeless about your marriage, your children, your church, your job, the nation, etc. Worry stalks you. It stalks your waking hours, and anxiety climbs into bed with you every night. You find it, here's, here's one, here, you find it difficult to rejoice in others' joy, often, often forcing yourself to fake it. At times you feel so hopeless and worthless that you think it would be better if you were not here. You're irritable and snappy at your wife and children. They view you as angry, impatient, frustrated, and critical. Just ask them. You avoid social occasions, neglect important relationships, and withdraw from friendships, even with people you care deeply about. You medicate yourself and your conscience by overspending, overdrinking, or overeating, and I added, or over social media-ing. Your personal devotions have decreased in length and increased in distraction. You check your email and social media before you meet with God each day. You skip church. Listening to sermons sends you to sleep. You don't enjoy fellowship with other Christians or serving God's church. You believe all the truths of the Bible, but you don't believe them for yourself. Murray goes on to say, probably everyone can tick a few of these items. Check the box. That's life for fallen creatures in a fallen world. But if you see five or more of these warning lights flashing on your dash, that should get your attention. And so what I'm talking about, I think everybody in here can relate to this. I can relate to a lot of those things on the list and even more that are in the book. But we know, up here at least, we know that Jesus has come, that we might have life and have it abundantly. Uh, He wants to be our purpose. He wants to be our meaning in life. Uh, He wants us to live fruitful and productive lives um, that reflect or that shine like a candle, the light of Jesus in a dark world. That's what his desire is for us. And I think that's what what all of our desires are, but we can often, you know, we can often drift away from what we know is the truth and where we should be. And so in the book of Exodus, I wanted to point out something that we've already mined out from chapter 1 to chapter 17. We've already mined out several uh, truths from God's word that if we would just grasp these truths, we would never go into burnout. And I want to just quickly go over them. Uh, I've got a list of them. The first one is that God has an unthwartable and unstoppable plan. Remember that. God has a plan that cannot be stopped. It's unthwartable, and it's for our redemption. It's to redeem things as they were meant to be in the garden, back and and, and to glorify him, to know him. He's going to glorify us. He's going to glorify creation again, bring it all back. That plan cannot be stopped. Uh, God sees and hears about everything. He is concerned. God is concerned about us. God sent a savior for us. God always keeps his word to us. God is with his people. God leads his people. God provides for his people. That's what we've been seeing the past few weeks in the book of Exodus. All these things, if we would just grasp these truths right here, we would never burn out. Because a lot of things that we burn out in is because we're trying to do things that we think that God isn't going to do for us, or that we have to make them happen Uh, We know better than God for things that he is not giving to us. But what God is saying in that list of of promises is he's saying this, just trust me, 
rest in me. That's what he's saying through these promises. And it's, like I said a few weeks ago, it's simple, right? But it's not easy. It's simple, but it's not easy. So with all these promises, the question that might arise in your mind is this. Do we have a part in this process? Is there anything practical in our, that we can apply in our lives to, to come along and cooperate with God in, in what he's doing? And I, would, I will answer, yes, there are ways, and we're going to look at them in just a minute here in our passage as we're getting into it. And real quick, just to bring us up to speed, God has delivered his people, Israel, from the Egyptians. They've come out. They've crossed through a miraculous, powerful work of God. They've, he separated the Red Sea. They've walked through it. And they've, they've gone into the wilderness, and he's provided for them. He's provided meat for them. He's provided bread for them. Manna from heaven has come down. Last week, Pastor Terry preached about how Moses took the staff of God, and through a rock, he brought streams of living water to the people to, to sustain them. So that's where we stopped last week. We're going to pick up in chapter 17, verse 8. Then Amalek, or the, uh, or the Amalekites, came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So they drink the water, and, they, and at some point, the Amalekites come and wage war against them. Now, the Amalekites descended from a guy named Esau. If you remember, Esau was the twin brother of Jacob, and from Jacob came the line of Israel, the Israelites, the ones that we're talking about. They all came from Jacob, and from Esau came the Amalekites. Now, Esau is a picture of the flesh. If you'll remember, he sold his birthright, a spiritual blessing, for what? One bowl of soup. He's a picture of what it looks like when God, when God brings us the wonderful gift of, of salvation, and we, we're like, now nah, I'd rather have the world than Christ. That's what Esau is a picture of. He wants it now. He'll, he's not going to worry about the future till he gets there. And um, so he's a type of the flesh, but so are his descendants in this passage the Amalekites, and, and I, want, I want us to see this, that they rise up and they attack Israel in a cowardly way. In, in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses reminds Joshua before they enter into the promised land, he goes, I want you to remember, let's, let me just read it. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were, look at this, faint and weary and cut off your tail. He cut off your tail. Those who were lagging behind you and did not fear God. The Amalekites attacked the Hebrews where? At their weakest point. The Amalekites are a picture of the flesh. That's how the, our flesh attacks us, when we're weak, when we're tired, when we're weary. That's when Satan comes to tempt us, to divide us, to separate us from one another, from God, and from the flock. And so when we're tired, when we're fatigued, we need to be aware that we are susceptible to the attacks of the flesh and of the enemy. Verse 9 says, So Moses said to Joshua, Now Joshua, this is the first time we hear about Joshua. He's going to become the one that succeeds Moses in the future and leads them into the promised land. But he says to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses raised up his hand, Israel prevailed. 
And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed or defeated Amalek and his people with the sword. Now, on the surface, this is kind of a a strange narrative. Um, Moses raises his hands, and they win. He he lowers them, and they lose. Um, What's going on here? Well, I want to... this. Little section here is a is a passage that will help us as we're looking at avoiding uh, burning out. But one of the things I want you to, if you're taking notes, that you might want to write down is this: is that God exalts Himself through vessels of weakness. God exalts Himself through vessels of weakness, and and I want us to see here that there are two. There's more than that in this passage, but there's two vessels of weakness that I want I want to point to. And the first is the staff of God. If you'll remember, the staff of God is the very staff that Moses had in his hand at the burning bush. It was just an ordinary piece of wood that if you had cut it up, you could use it for firewood. But in the hand of God's servant, it became an instrument of, number one, judgment. It became an instrument of judgment. If you remember, this is the same staff that Moses struck the Nile River with, when he was judging, and it turned to blood, he was judging the Egyptians. And it's the same staff last week that he struck the rock with to bring salvation. So it's an instrument of salvation, and it's an instrument of judgment. Also, it is a, an instrument to, or a visible reminder to the Israelites that God was with them, and that he is powerful, and that his presence is with him. So what it looks like is the Israelites are fighting down in the valley, Moses lifts his hand up. Some people think it might be, you know, the staff like this or like this. I think it might be like this, uh, like a banner. Uh, and whenever the Israelites would, would look up and see that the, that the staff was in the air, it empowered them to remember God is with us. He's for us. He's fighting for us. And uh, so when he lowered it, they didn't see it. So they needed to see something to remind them that God was with them. This is a a similar picture to another uh, ordinary piece of wood that became super extraordinary uh, when the Son of God came down from heaven and lifted up his hands and was nailed to it, the cross, and hung uh, between heaven and earth for his people when he died in our place. That ordinary piece of wood became a symbol of our salvation. So when we are in the valley fighting uh, the enemies of Amalek, the first thing we need to do to avoid burnout is to look up and remember the cross. Remember what Christ did for us because that is the power. That's where we start. The power, we, we have to be reminded our sin has been paid for. We're not fighting to get God's approval. We're fighting because we have his approval through Jesus Christ. So again, that's a picture. The, the, piece, the staff is a reminder to them. It's, a, it's a, 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 an instrument of weakness that God turns into a powerful symbol in order to encourage his people, to strengthen and encourage his people and to help them to continue to fight in the battle. So that's the first vessel of weakness. The second vessel of weakness is Moses. Moses 
um, as we see in this passage, is weak, and he needs assistance. Number one, he needs assistance from God. And number two, I love this, he needs the assistance of his brothers, Aaron and Hur. And so as Moses is, is raising his hands, he is standing in a position of uh, a prayer. This is, he's expressing his need for God. This is how Hebrews would stand to pray to God with their hands lifted up. And, you know, when we pray, one of the things we're doing is we're expressing our weakness. God doesn't pray to us. He talks to us. We pray to him because he is the one that, is, that can do something about our situation. And so when we, when we pray, we're saying, Father, um, Lord, I need you. I cannot do this or whatever the thing, situation. I cannot defeat this enemy in my own Strength, and so if we are going to, if we're going to avoid burnout, we have to first and foremost embrace the fact that we are weak. I know our society wants to tell you to look in the mirror and tell yourself you're strong, but Scripture doesn't teach us to do that. It teaches us that we're weak, that we're finite, that we're limited, that we're mortal, that we're we we need a savior. We're created beings. Our strength is not in ourselves. Our strength comes from the Lord. And the good thing about prayer that we often forget is that God hears and responds to the prayers of his people. And not only that, he invites us to come to him in prayer. 1 Peter 5, 7, most of us know this, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. I'm going to read that again. Cast all your anxiety on him. Why? Because he cares for you. He cares about your situation. This is Exodus in the New Testament. God cares about his people. Uh, Philippians 4, 6 says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. Do not be anxious about anything, but I am anxious about everything. Right? Are you guys, don't you guys get anxious about everything? I do. But he says, don't. So what do you do? In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. In other words, bring your, your problems, your situations that are draining you to God. And as I've studied this passage, um, I was struck by the similarities of prayer in the life of Moses and in the life of the, the believer. So what I did here is I want to go back and look at verse 11. And I took the place where it said he raised his hands, I put prayer, the word prayer in there, or he prayed. So I want to read that with that in mind. Whenever Moses prayed, Israel prevailed. And whenever he ceased to pray, Amalek prevailed. But Moses grew weary in prayer, so Aaron and Hur prayed with him, one on one side and the other on the other side. Again, he's showing we need one another. So his prayers were steady until the going down of the sun, which led to the victory over the Amalekites. My question to you this morning, are, are, you, are you looking to the cross, number one? Number two, are you coming to the cross with, in prayer, to Jesus in prayer? I was talking to somebody uh, last week that, that's a believer, and they were telling me about their finances, how they just don't have what they need, and I was like, have you prayed about it? They were like, no, I haven't. And I was like, why not? 
That's where you're going to find the strength. That's where you're going to find provision coming to, to the Lord. And that's what I want to ask you this morning. Who, uh, what, what Amalekite is attacking you right now? Is there, an, is there something in your life right now that you're worried about, that you're concerned about, that's tempting you uh, to fear, that's draining you of life, that's cutting off your tail? Maybe it's your finances. Uh, maybe it's future plans. What are you going to do in the future? Maybe it's your current failings right now. You're failing. You feel like uh, in, in your walk with the Lord, you're failing. Or maybe it's in your job, you're failing. Or in just life in general, you feel like you're failing. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's friends. Maybe it's a difficult conversation that you need to have with somebody, but you're, it's just making you anxious. And, and it's, it's, it's taking life from you. Maybe it's something that you want, you want to have, uh, and it's good, but you don't have it, but it's simply because you didn't ask God for it. It's, it's things like that. What, what enemies, what weaknesses do you have that are prevailing in your life simply because you're not praying about it? Um, that is something that I want to uh, challenge you this week. If you've got something in your head this, this morning that I want to ask you, have you been praying about it? And if not, I want to encourage you, take it to the Lord and uh, trusting that he hears you, that he cares about you, and that he can do something about your situation. Secondly, uh, I have a question for you. Who are the Aaron's and the hers in your life? Who are the people that you can, that can come around you when you're weak and pray with you? Now, if you don't have anybody, let me just say it's not because they don't exist. Um, this church is full of people that pray and is full of people that would love to come alongside of you and pray. So at the end of the service, a lot of times me or Terry will say, hey, uh, if you want, want us to pray with you, please come to, to us and we'll talk and let's pray together. And, and not just with us, but praying with one another, brothers and sisters here, lifting one another up in prayer. So before we leave chapter 17 and go into chapter 18, I just want to make sure that I'm being clear that avoiding burnout requires that we overcome our weaknesses and our fears by laying them at the feet of Jesus in prayer. Now, in chapter 18, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, pays him a visit. He comes to visit with them, and, and along with him, he brings Moses' wife, Zipporah, and their two sons. Now, at some point, and we don't know when, Moses took his wife and children and gave, uh, gave them to Jethro, probably for safekeeping. We don't know when that happened, but he's bringing them back to him. And it says um, in verse 7, Moses, when he heard about this, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. This is a great example of what hospitality looks like. This is how I envision Reach Life, our church growing through this type of, of fellowship. Uh, now, I don't, if I come over to your house, I don't expect you to bow down and, and kiss me. Okay, Don't kiss me. So it's one of those things that back then it's a, uh, it's a uh, cultural practice of showing honor to, to one another. So that was be culturally relevant, uh, where, what, whatever you're doing. Make sure that you're relevant in what you're doing. But... Um, I, I envision, and it's, this is already happening in our church, but I can see it happening even more, where we're gathering around kitchen tables, gathering around living rooms, spending time together, exalting God with one another, enjoying 
one another in Christ. And, and I, want to, I want you to see in verse 8 how Moses does this with his father-in-law. Verse 8, it says, Then Moses told his father-in-law, look at this, all that the Lord had done. He starts to brag on the Lord. All that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All the hardship that had come upon them in the way. And how the Lord had prevailed or delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel. And that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro rejoiced. And there is a debate here whether or not Jethro was uh, a true believer in the God of Israel. The scripture is not clear in this, but at the very least, we know that Moses' testimony as he talked about God and lifted up God and showed what God had done in their hardships, it caused Jethro to rejoice in the goodness and in the faithfulness of the Lord and to take a step, at least take a step forward in his faith with God. Now look at verse 10. It says, uh, after hearing Moses' testimony, Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hands of the Egyptians and out of the hands of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Verse 11 is a key verse. It says, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods because, of, because in this affair, they dealt arrogantly with the people. And, you know, that's the purpose of our testimony. That when we share what God has done, is doing in our lives, has done and is doing in our lives, it should, should help people see that there is there's only one Lord and that the Lord is greater than all gods. Verse 12 says, And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. And that is a beautiful picture, again, of what the church should look like. Us enjoying what God has done for us and through us. Enjoying one another, declaring his works with one another. And then inviting people in to what God is doing in our midst so that they can enjoy what God has done, so they can find Jesus, so they can be ignited by the light of Jesus. Now, verse 13, we're going to go to the next day, and it says that uh, Moses sat to judge the people. It must have been Sunday that uh, they had this meal when Moses wasn't working, and that, I'm kidding, I don't think they did it that way, but in our culture, that's what that would have been. But it says, the next day, Moses sat at the ju uh, to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? Now, I don't know if Moses thought that uh, his father-in-law was impressed, like, what are you doing? Wow, why are you, you know, doing this all alone? And so Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me, to inquire of God. When they have a, a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his law. Basically, what Moses is saying is, man, there are so many needs in this community, uh, so many needs among these people, and I am the only one who can minister to them. He thinks that he is the only one to do the job. If he doesn't do the job, it's not going to get done. So he picks it up, and he's doing everything. 
Verse 17, it says, Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You, you, you and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out. You see that? What he's saying, you're going to burn out, Moses. You and all the people are going to burn out, for this thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now, it's clear, it's easy to see how Moses is wearing himself out. But not only is he wearing himself out, the people are getting worn out because they're standing around all day waiting for Moses to minister to them. It's kind of like waiting at the DMV to get your license renewed. Have you ever done that? It, you're just standing there, but it is so tiring, isn't it? You, you're worn out just by standing around waiting all day. That's what's happening in this culture. They, people are getting worn out because only one person is doing all the work. Verse 19, Jethro says, Now obey my voice, and I will give you advice, and God be with you. Now, remember, the day before is a day of celebrating uh, with Moses and Jethro and all that the Lord has done. This is one of the most easy and enjoyable parts of being in a relationship when you can just, just encourage one another, tell everybody what you're doing right, the direction you're going is good, and we need that. That is a healthy part of, being, of growing disciples. We need to encourage our children. We need to encourage our spouses. We need to encourage one another. We, we need encouragement. That, there's no question that we need that. But today is a little different day for Moses. Today is a day of correction. And, you know, correction is that kind of love that we don't like. We do not like correction. At least that's what the Scriptures teach. It says, in, in, and we say this on several occasions, that Hebrews says that, uh, calls it unpleasant at the time. No discipline seems pleasant at the time. Correction cuts, doesn't it? Correction hurts, doesn't it? Proverbs 27, 6 says, though, faithful are the words of the wounds, not of an enemy, but of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Enemies will flatter you. They will tell you what you want to hear. Friends will tell you the truth. They'll tell you what you need to hear, even if it hurts you. That's what true friends are. Charles Spurgeon said this, true friends put enough trust in you to tell, true friends put enough trust in you to tell you openly of your faults. Give me a friend Give me for a friend the man who will speak honestly of me before my face, who will not tell first one neighbor and then another, but who will come straight to my house and say, Sir, I feel there is such and such a thing in you, which, as my brother, I must tell you of. That man is a true friend. He has proved himself to be so, for when, when we never get any praise for telling people, I'm sorry, let me read that again. He has proved himself to be so. For we never get any praise for telling people of their faults. We rather avoid their dislike. A man will sometimes thank you for it, but he does not often like you any the better. True friends know how to encourage and how to wound their friends for their good. And that's a skill that we need to learn um, I've done it, I've brought sledgehammers when I should have brought trim hammers 
to, uh, to correct people and vice versa. But you know, even if we're corrected in the wrong way, there's usually correction in there that we can take away from it, isn't there? But that's what Jethro was doing this morning. He's saying, Moses, your candle is upside down. Um, you can't do it all. And he, he instructs, what he does is he instructs Moses to delegate everything out uh, to trustworthy and able men who fear God and then to leave him the most challenging cases for him to deal with. Verse 22, Jethro says, Delegate things out so it will be easier for you. And they will, speaking of the people, they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you and you will be able to endure. And all this people also will go to their place in peace. You'll prosper. Verse 24, So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law, and did all that he had said. This is a good thing. When he was corrected, instead of denying it, instead of deflecting it, and instead of defending himself, Moses listens to the voice of God. Now, this is God speaking to him through Jethro, and he takes action. So, another question I want to ask you this morning is this. Who is your Jethro in life? Who has God sent to you into your life to be your Jethro, that person that will tell you the truth, that will encourage you, and you know they're for you, but they'll also tell you the truth when you're headed in the, in the wrong direction, when you're burning upside down. It might be, again, it might be a parent, it might be a spouse, it might be a teacher, a friend, uh, parents who have uh, older children, it might be your children that God is, is uh, bringing to you in order to help you see that. But let me ask you this, are you listening to them? Are you listening to them or are you uh, disregarding what they're saying? If we disregard the people that God brings to us to tell us the truth when we're heading in the wrong direction, we're going to burn out. We're not going to make it. We're not going to last. So just want to encourage us to listen when God speaks to us through our, the Jethro's in our life. Now, the thing that we see here is that Moses realized that he couldn't do the work by himself, that he needed God's people he needed God's people to come alongside of him and engage with him to help carry the load. It, it was way too much for him. And if he was going to win the battle, he needed them. And if they were going to prosper as a community, he needed them to come alongside and to help him. And you know what? That's where I am this morning. That's where I am as a, as a pastor at Reach Life Church. Uh, like Moses, I'm at a place where I realize that I can't do it all. And, and, and you guys know this. We've talked about this. Um, as the quote says, I know that it takes all God's people to do all of God's work, right? Uh, mine and Terry's primary calling is, as pastors here, as elders here, we're, we've been called by God to oversee the church, to set the vision, to be about prayer, and to be about the Word of God, to teach the Word of God, and to equip the saints for what? for the ministry, for the work of the ministry. We're to equip you through the word, through prayer, through fellowship, through the breaking of the bread. We are to encourage you and, and give you the, uh, the equipping to be, to make, to grow, to be unleashed as gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. That's our, um, our job description. Now, it doesn't mean we don't participate, but we're not supposed to do all of it. We're, our primary is to equip. And, you know, if we're not careful, we can be like parents who cripple their children 
because parents that cripple their children by doing everything for their child that they could do for themselves or paying them for things that they should do for free, like cleaning their rooms, like doing the dishes, like doing laundry, like doing their homework. Like, I love this. Don't your parents love this? Mowing the grass, helping out, being a part of the community of your family. And if we're not careful, we can, we can be parents that exist to, to make sure our children are, are happy and, and pacified instead of raising them to be responsible contributors. Uh, and that can happen in the church, too, where the congregation thinks, and our congregation, I don't think you think this, but thinks that the pastors are supposed to do all the work while, while everybody kind of stands around and watches. And so, you know, one of the, the questions that I want to ask is um, I asked this at the Vision Update meeting uh, last two uh, Wednesdays ago. I asked, do you want to be a church member that is engaged in the work of the church and helping build, as it were, the church using your gifts and talents and resources? Do you want to be engaged or do you just want to show up once the building is built and come in and just sit down and enjoy the blood, sweat, and tears of those around us? That's a question that we need to ask. Do we want to be consumers? Do you want to be a consumer or do you want to be a contributor? Um, We can be a church that stands around and waits for Moses to do everything. And if that happens, everybody's going to get burned out. And not just Moses, but the entire congregation is going to get frustrated. Why isn't anything happening? Why is nothing going on good around here? Um, but God is, has brought us together with talents and gifts and resources in order to accomplish a specific, um, unique goal for Reach Life Church. All of us are called to, our purpose is to glorify God. Every church should be about glorifying God by making much of his son. Every church mission should be to be, make, grow, and unleash gospel-centered disciples in some way, form, or fashion. They say it that way. And every church should be about growing up, in, and out. Every church should be about that, but it, it should look different at each church because of the people that God has brought here. And let me show you what it does not look like. What it does not look like to be a church uh, that I'm talking about. It's like if someone comes up to me and says, James, I, I, God has laid it on my heart to tell you that you need to start a um, a uh, Hispanic ministry. And no one's ever done that to me, so I'm not talking about anybody in this church. Now, do I want to reach the Hispanic community? Yes, I would love to do that, okay? But if they said, James, I want you to, re- to do that, Spanish speaking, I would say, como estas, bien, me llamo es Jaime, and Feliz Navidad. That's all I would say, and that would be as far as the ministry would go. So I would say that, okay, if God really is, is calling us to that, can you speak Spanish? No, I, I can't speak Spanish. Or yes, I can speak Spanish. Well, do you want to be a part? No, I, don't, I want you to be a part of it. That's not, that's not the way that God designed the church. What I would say is this to that person, if you've got an, an idea like that in your mind, is God wanting you to be the, the person that he's raising up to do that and do the work of that? And I would say, go and pray about it. If, if you can't do it and you feel like God's doing that, pray about it. Because again, we believe that God brings to the church the people that he wants to engage in a specific type of ministry. 
and, and, and meeting needs. Now, that's what it does not look like. Let me show you what it does look like because it's already happening in our church. Um, Zeke Farnsworth, uh, yes, our main man, Zeke, uh, he's, he moved here, like I said a few weeks ago, to intern. He texted me and said, hey, do we have a, a church basketball league uh, that our church is involved in? And I said, no. He said, but it's not because I don't want to be. I said, would you like to oversee that? He said, sure. So that we're, did you see the announcement at the beginning? We're having a basketball team for the first time at Reach Life. It's because he's taking up, he's taking a passion of his, and he's using it to bless the body. Um, there's a, let me give another example. Um, Grant and Megan Tabor. Uh, can y'all, like, yeah, come on, give a woohoo to them, right? Um, they came here back, I guess, in February, March last year or so. Let me give a backstory on this. I grew up here, and um, I believe that wherever we live, where our houses are, we should minister in that community. And so there's a high school that I went to that, I, that I've told the church, man, I want to reach this high school. So I've walked around it for a couple years praying and, you know, Lord, show me how to do that. And Joanna Dages, uh, who is someone that invites people, invited the, the Tabers to come to Reach Life. They came, we're talking, I'm like, um, what do you guys do? They're like, they tell me what they do, but then they say, we're also uh, involved in Young Life at A.C. Reynolds. That's the high school I want to be a part of. I'm like, you're, you're involved already there? Yes. So what did we do? We started talking, we started going to football games together. They started doing a tailgate party and uh, before the game and having high schoolers come to that um, if you've given to Reach Life Church financially, we have helped, you've helped supply hamburgers and hot dogs and drinks and stuff for that event. Um, they're also doing a uh, gingerbread house building thingy, uh, which we get the privilege of helping participate in that, okay? So what the example there is that they are doing something that we want to do as a church, and we're getting behind them and helping them to do it. It's not me doing it. I get to, like, I showed up and flipped hamburgers and kind of stood in the shadows and just watched ministry happening. That was such a joy. What I love is, to, is when I hear that things are going on and I had nothing to do with them, but it's because you guys love Jesus and are administering to one another. Um, I'm not going to stop there. I want to talk about um, Leslie Cassell, who supplies baked goods and, and puts pounds on all of us uh, as she, it's so good, it's bad. Um, <laughs> But she, I mean, various ministries within the church, she, it's just like she, like, pops, I don't know how you do it. It's like Pop-Tarts, but they taste much better. Um, Megan Stewart, using her car uh, to bring people to Reach Life who don't have a car. She sees that she has this resource, and she goes and picks up people. Now, it takes energy to do that. It takes a sacrifice. Yeah, oh, that's, yes, that's what's, what we're talking about here. But she does it. Uh, Nancy Crane and Debbie Davis, who have been faithfully leading our women's prayer ministry uh, on Monday nights. A lot of what we're seeing happening in our church going right now is because of the faithful prayers of our women in our church. Uh, Scott and Georgiana Adams, uh, who are in the back here in their, their little uh, facility in the back, they are the types of people, they do things, that you don't notice unless they weren't done. They work behind the scenes so many ways 
that we don't even, you don't even know. I know about a lot of them. I don't even know about everything, but they're blessing the church that way. Um, we have uh, Hannah Mae Park. Give her a little clap there. She, she wants to come up and sing a solo, right? <laughs> now, Hannah Mae is, is one of those faithful members of our church who writes handwritten letters of encouragement. She's given several to us as a family um, uh, to, to let us know how much she appreciates us. And uh, we love her. Um, there's uh, Marvin Davis, um, who he could use any excuse not to be a part of, of what's going on at the church. But he loves the church. He's uh, one of our senior saints. Uh, and he, just him showing up, his presence in our church life has been an encouragement to many of us uh, in the way that he serves that way. Uh, Charlie Crane and Courtney Harris, who um, they use their accounting gifts. Listen, I'm not good at accounting. My, my accountant, uh, when I'm doing construction, just always like cringes when I, he sees my books. They're so bad. But they make sure our church doesn't, I don't go to jail at the church, okay? <laughs> they, they, ha- they keep their eyes on it, make sure that we're going in the right direction. Uh, even like Emily Holland taking presents home to wrap them. She's like, that was, nothing, that was big. Have you seen me wrap a present? People don't open my presents. So it's one of those things. She did it when we were doing the, the, the uh, shoes for the, for the um, Transformation Village. I could go on. I mean, I could go on and on. If I did not call you out this morning, it's not because you're not on my mind and, and, and my uh, gratitude. But that right there is what it looks like. That's what it looks like for us to all come together, to lift one another's arms up, to do the work of the church. And, and you know what? The, the, the exciting thing is that God is using ordinary shepherd staffs. We're all ordinary. There's no superstars in this room, not one. We're all ordinary people. But if we're willing to allow God to use us, uh, he will do extraordinary things through us. And we will know it was not us, and we will point to him. And, and there's, a, there's, a, there's a good thing going on in our church, and it's because God is at work within us. And as we continue to build on the foundation of the gospel of what Christ did, as we keep looking at his work and being empowered by what he did, we're going to be even more fruitful. Um, We are just candles, right? But I don't want to burn out, and I don't want any of you guys to burn out in our church because you're doing too much. We want to work together. We want to burn up towards Christ, and it won't be, we won't burn out if we all bear the burden together. This is what, I'm going to just close with this last verse here. Jethro basically said, and I'm going to make it personalized to us, if we do this, if we do what I I just shared, God will direct us. We will be able to endure, not burn out, and Jesus will be exalted in our midst. Amen? Amen.